Good evening. If you'll please open up your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 13. 2 Samuel chapter 13 is where we're going to begin our study this evening. We all know that adversity among loved ones is simply crippling to a person's soul. We know uh, personally how close, close ones, family, friends that are close to us, people that we love, often have the potential to end up causing us the most harm and the most hurt when they sin against us or when we sin against them. We do and we say things against one another that can end up leaving permanent scars and rupture relationships forever. What ends up happening is in response to this, families, churches, and friendships end up becoming this big old mess of, of backstabbing and revenge and whispering. And obviously this is not God's design for oftentimes what happens is the responses to being sinned against by a loved one end up becoming worse than the initial sins themselves. The responses vary from envy, strife, malice, slander. And even murder, as we will see in today's situations. And these are all condemned behaviors, obviously, from Romans chapter 1. With all the mess that adversity among loved ones can cause, we must consider, how can we avoid these sins when we enter into adversity? How can we avoid, when these situations seem to be so tense, when the emotions are so high, How can we avoid sinning in response and how can we glorify God with our responses to adversity among loved ones? Well, tonight we're going to use the example, the poor example of King David's son Absalom and the excellent example of Jacob's son Joseph to see how we ought not handle adversity and how we ought to handle adversity among family and close friends. Because as we consider all of this difficulty and all the high tensions and emotions, I think we can all admit that it's difficult to believe that anything good can come of these situations. But I hope that after we finish tonight or by the time we finish tonight, we will all be able to see that, yes, it is possible if we will work hard at it to overcome these situations in a righteous way. And I hope we will be able to see how we can do that. Uh, So we're going to begin in Second Samuel chapter 13. It really Absalom's story ranges from uh, chapter 13 to 18. And so obviously we're not going to consider every single detail in those story in the story here. Rather, we're going to overall consider the uh, broad account. Absalom's story starts with understanding that he's King David's son, and he has a beautiful sister named Tamar. And they have a half-brother, though Absalom and and Tamar, full brother and sister, they have a half-brother named Amnon. And Amnon was completely smitten with his sister, his half-sister, Tamar. And he loved her so much so that he was just sick with love. And so he had to do something about it. And so he devised a plan and he asked for Tamar to come to his room. He acted like he was sick and he wanted Tamar to come to his room to make him some food, to make him some cakes. And so he successfully, Amnon successfully tricked Tamar into his room and got himself alone with her. As you can imagine, the scene that follows is absolutely horrific. Despite Tamar's loud, loud objections, 
Amnon forced himself onto his sister Tamar and violated her. Just imagine being in Tamar's situation. The humiliation that that would cause. Not just some any old person doing this. That's humiliating enough. But your own brother, who's supposed to respect and love you. God's law from this point demanded that Amnon marry and take care of Tamar for the rest of his life for the shame that he caused her. She would never be married again in this culture. But 2 Samuel chapter 13 and verses 15 through 19 tell us how Amnon responded to to this situation. Notice verse 15. It says, Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put out this woman from my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. This account is outright disturbing. Amnon's deceit and treachery would cause this young woman a life full of shame, especially considering that no man would have anything to do with her after this. But our focus tonight is how would her brother Absalom respond to this terrible sin being committed against his sister? Notice verses 22-22 with me. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So so Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of these things, he was very angry. But when Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. You notice, first off, I want you to notice verse 21 King David's not our focus tonight, but notice how he is furious with Amnon, but he does absolutely nothing about the situation. His son has sinned in a terrible way, yet he does absolutely nothing about it. But then Tamar, she runs to Absalom, her brother, seeking shelter, seeking comfort, And I don't know about you, but at first I was confused by the words of verse 20, what Absalom says to his sister there. Some translations, I think, really get it right. He essentially says, he's your brother. Don't worry about it. He doesn't do anything at all. He simply comforts her and tells her to just forget about it. This is a serious sin. But we all know. We all know what happens because verse 22, verse 22 tells us how Absalom really felt in his heart. Absalom would not even speak a word to Amnon 
because he hated him. He hated him deeply. And so neither Amnon, no, neither Absalom nor David did anything about what happened. And I believe this is where we see their first mistakes in this account. Absalom and even David both avoided reconciling sin in righteous ways while they still could. Shock and hurt were at an all-time high. And we all know that the hurt from loved ones is so deep and so emotional at times that we just want to completely separate from a relationship with them. We don't even want to see them anymore or have anything to do with solving anything. That's what David and Absalom did here. David didn't carry out justice against Amnon as he should have. And Absalom should have at least had a difficult conversation, a very difficult conversation with Amnon or at least appealed to David, King David, based on the law that he either marry Tamar or be stoned if he would not answer this and having the judicial process being carried out. But nothing happens at all. In fact, it just seems like Absalom withdrew from the situation altogether. And by doing this, I believe that both Absalom and David lost their best opportunity to solve the problem, to solve this terrible sin in a righteous manner. You know, we really have the highest expectations of those who are dearest to us. And we all know that these expectations are completely shattered when slander, outbursts of anger, fraud, violence, and other such sins are committed against us or when we commit them against other people. We trusted one another. And since that's been broken, we often desire to act exactly as Absalom and David did here in this situation. I don't want to have anything to do with them. I don't want to even talk to them anymore. I don't want to deal with this situation. But if we've truly been sinned against, is this a sin that we just forget about? Let's be real. That's not a sin we forget about. When we are actually sinned against, that's not just something we just put out of our mind and say, oh, well, whatever. We do try to be people who forget one another's wrongs. But this is a different situation. And as we'll see in this story, when sin is not handled with a certain amount of immediacy, emotions kind of seem like they settle. As we'll see in the story, a couple of years are going to pass. Nothing happens. It seems like everything settles. But internally, emotions and tensions are high. Bitterness is only growing. Lesson number one to learn from Absalom and even David's mistakes here is that avoidance does not reconcile sin. In fact, it often exacerbates its effects. And that's what we see. You can see there in verse 23, the story goes on to say that two full years had passed before anything happens. But no, though nothing happened externally, Absalom's sorrow had turned into a burning hatred for Amnon. And so he devised a plot to get back at him. Absalom lured Amnon and his fellow brothers into a a situation that just seemed like a celebration. They go there, they're feasting together. And though everything, everything seemed peaceful, when Amnon was unaware and when his heart was merry with wine, Absalom ordered his servants to murder Amnon in cold blood. Step one of his revenge was accomplished. 
he immediately, Absalom immediately fled to Geshur, where his some of his mother's family was, and he remained there for three years, three years, trying to avoid the consequences of this murder. But then he's finally called back to Jerusalem by King David. He's kind of coerced into it, King David is, and so he brings Absalom back. But even once Absalom comes back to Jerusalem, folks, it's two more years before Absalom even sees David's face. Seven years goes by after Tamar's rape before anything happens at all. And when he actually does go into the king's presence to his father's presence, there is still not any type of reconciliation. There's no conversation about Amnon's sin, about Absalom's sin. Nothing happens. David kisses him on the forehead and that's it. No difficult conversations happen. And so... Absalom, we can see if you turn to chapter 15, you can notice there from verses 1 through 7, we're not going to get into all the details, but essentially you see there in verse 7 that four more years pass by, 11 years. And in those four years, Absalom spends his time at the gate of the city slandering his father's reputation, saying, oh, if there were only a judge to handle your problems... And he starts to promote his own abilities to the people of the city. And slander against his father caused Absalom's popularity to grow in a great way. So that soon enough he had enough power to overthrow his own father. The most popular king of all, his own father as king. And so he did. He overthrew him. King David is forced to flee the city. And then in an act of defiance and showing his great power, he violated all of his father's concubines publicly in front of the city. Publicly. Then he plotted from there how he might go and kill his father, David, and finish out this revenge. But fortunately, 11 years after his sister was violated, 11 years afterwards, his run of revenge ended with his own death as he was caught in a tree and essentially turned into a pincushion. His life was finished, but the consequences were not over. And we know that if you continue on through 2 Samuel, David's Reign from then on is just terrible because of what Absalom had done. We've got to be very clear about this whole situation, everything that happens here. Tamar, and if you want to include Absalom as well, they're sinned against and they are wronged in terrible ways. But we've got to be real about this. The way Absalom handled his sin mattered. It ruined his life. It estranged him from his father. It wrecked his family. And it ended up turning him into a worse sinner than Amnon who had raped his own sister. Murder, slander, and rape only list a few of Absalom's sin that he committed in response. How could a person commit worse sins than the one he is seeking vengeance against? 
I believe the second thing we see in this account is that Absalom didn't put the past behind him. He only continued to dwell in it. In fact, we see this very clearly. If you'll turn back to chapter 13, you can see this in verse 32. It's seen really throughout this entire story, but we see it most specifically here when Jonadab, uh, Absalom's cousin, speaks to David about this whole situation. He says there in verse 32 of chapter 13, Let not my Lord suppose that they had killed all the young men, the king sons for Amnon alone is dead. Now notice this for by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister for two years. Absalom plotted his brother's death. And then for years after that, even once Absalom went back to Jerusalem, he spent four years plotting his father's overthrow. He was soaking on the sins of Amnon, soaking on the lack of response by David. His sorrow may have been understandable, certainly, but his sorrow grew into an anger and bitterness and eventually a hatred that ended up controlling Absalom's decisions for the next 11 years. Who really ended up losing in this situation? The one who was controlled so fiercely by Satan and his own responses. We should not underestimate the effect of our own thoughts when we are sinned against. How we handle being sinned against matters, as we saw here in this situation very clearly. How we think about, how we react to being sinned against by loved ones can can really determine our direction and our family's direction and our friendship's direction for years to come, the direction of our entire life and our eternal situation with our Lord. Our feelings are going to be hurt and people are going to do terrible things against us. And let we can be honest about this. We're not robots who can prevent that from happening. We're not robots, robots who can prevent sorrow in the slightest. But, If we allow ourselves to remain in sorrow, this can quickly transform into worse things and eventually allows Satan to completely control us. If you're a Star Wars fan, you know how true this is. Yoda was right about little Anakin's sorrow over his mother's slavery, wasn't he? Because that sorrow crept into bitterness and a hatred that turned a little innocent boy into an absolute monster that it, I mean, really, it wrecked the Republic for years and the whole galaxy. (laughs) Dwelling on our disappointments with others is dangerous because it transforms into a bitterness that leads us into worse sins than the ones committed against us. When we're sinned against Christians, We need to mind the way we think and mind the way we talk about these situations. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5 that we are just the same as murderers if we're angry with our brother. And some translations like to add angry with our brother without cause because the scribes thought that was a little too extreme. If we're angry with our brothers, we are considered the same by Jesus Christ. We must wield control over our thoughts of anger and bitterness. Satan is trying to bring us down. He he is simply using natural sorrow. It is natural to sorrow, just like a lot of feelings are natural. But Satan holds on to those things 
and he's trying to find an opportunity. We've got to be so aware, so introspective, so seeing what Satan is doing in our lives. He's trying to control us, bring us down, wreck our family, wreck our lives, wreck our relationship with God. And Absalom certainly gives an example of what not to do in this situation. Don't wait. Don't avoid reconciliation because that only exacerbates the effects of sins. And don't then continue to dwell on sorrow and dwell on past sins committed against us. But how can we actively pursue peace when battles are brewing among loved ones? Turn to Genesis chapter 37 and I believe we'll get to see there an excellent, excellent example of Joseph. Because many of us do know Joseph's story pretty well. And Joseph's story spans all the way from chapter 37 all the way to the end of Genesis. And we're just going to pick out parts of this here. Uh, Joseph essentially, the essential thing to understanding Joseph's story is that Joseph was dearly loved by his father, wasn't he? More than all of his other brothers. But his brothers had a deep, deep envy because of this. They were very jealous of Joseph and this jealousy drove them to do something that changed Joseph's life and their entire family's lives forever. One day they saw Joseph coming out to them to check out how things were going. He was sent by his father. They're alone. No one else is around. And they start talking as he's on his way. Hey, let's kill him. Let's kill this dreamer that they are so envious of and they hate so much. But eventually they end up deciding to sell him into slavery, into the hands of some Ishmaelite traders that come along. He's sold into slavery and then he ends up being sold by these Ishmaelites into the hands of a man named Potiphar who was an Egyptian officer in Egypt. Just imagine being in the situation of this 17-year-old boy. You're sold by your brothers, the guys who are supposed to protect you, the guys who are supposed to look out for you. Days and weeks go by. Eventually months go by, years go by. You don't hear anything from your brothers. And I think even more notably is even in Joseph's situation, you don't hear anything from your father. Joseph doesn't know that his father uh, doesn't know what has really happened in this situation. Joseph's brothers lied. They said he'd been killed by an animal. Joseph, feel, he's got to feel abandoned by both his brothers and by his father. Alone, a slave. It was 13 years, 13 years before God provided Joseph a way out of this life. He served Potiphar for some time, but then he was wrongly accused of attempted rape and then sent to prison for who knows how long in there. But overall, 13 years of misery. 13 years before he gets out of this. Joseph deserved none of this. How would Joseph respond to being sinned against by his brothers? Well, I think what's interesting in the story is we can see time and again that Joseph actually responded by developing godly character and godly conduct throughout the whole situation, despite his loneliness and despite his poor situation. Many might say, well, this seems pretty unrelated to Joseph's future reconciliation, but I believe this is absolutely pivotal and him developing a godly conduct and godly character at this time prepared him to reconcile with his brothers later on in an 
an appropriate and godly way. When Joseph had been wronged so severely, would anybody blame Joseph for never rising above his situation as a servant in Potiphar's house or as a slave or as a prisoner? No, no one would expect anything from Joseph except for him to be, once he got to prison, just this downtrodden prisoner with bitterness who lost all care and lost all hope in the Lord. But both in Potiphar's household and in prison, he excelled both in his hard work and in his righteous conduct. He's constantly talking about how God is working through his life, constantly remaining pure. Though he had been sinned against, he knew that God still expected righteous conduct from him. I think that's significant because we live in a world full of people And at times it could be ourselves who we kind of excuse ourselves for being stuck in a mediocre spirituality, a mediocre conduct and and level of relationship with God simply because of our parents or our circumstances. And though those circumstances are difficult, Joseph shows us that we can rise above our circumstances. And especially we can do this by a focus on personal holiness and a focus on God's expectations for us in this time. This is the foundation to handling adversity in a proper way. Though no one else may be watching, though none may blame, may blame us for sinking low and never rising above our circumstances, if we will focus on holiness and focus Focus on God's expectations. This will help us handle adversity properly in the future. When loved ones sin against us, what's the temptation? The temptation is to spend hours, days, months, and years, and decades soaking on all of their imperfections, isn't it? But what naturally suffers whenever we do this? Our own conduct. Naturally, when we're focusing on someone else's path and their lack of following righteousness, we're not watching out for what's going on in our own lives. We're not able to see how we uh, have temptations coming our own way. Uh, On top of that, we're developing pride and self-righteousness against others when we ourselves are sinners. I suggest that if Joseph made this mistake, he would not have turned away Potiphar's wife whenever she came at him asking to sleep with him. And he probably would have killed his brothers at the first opportunity he had. When adversity hits your life, we need to be focusing. All of us, when adversity hits our life, especially among loved ones, we need to focus on handling our own temptations to sin instead of focusing on others' failures. This will prepare us to handle adversity with purity and holiness. So for 13 long, long, long years that I'm sure seemed like they would never end for Joseph, Joseph finally had freedom from his brother's actions. His day finally came when he interpreted Pharaoh's dream successfully and because of this was appointed a commander in Egypt at 30 years old. But even nine more years passed before his brothers came back to Egypt, came to Egypt uh, seeking for seeking grain. This is 22 years after he's seen his brothers. Just imagine that moment when you first see your brothers who ruined 13 years of your life and estranged you from everything, the life you had always known. Well, initially, Joseph toyed a little bit with his brothers. 
But I believe that Joseph does two specific things, two more specific things on top of what we've already considered that changed everything in this situation in his interactions with his family that provide, I believe, an excellent example for us as we consider handling adversity among loved ones. The second thing that I believe Joseph does is he immediately brings up their sin and he does it with humility and forgiveness. Turn to chapter 45 and verses three through five. And we'll notice how he does this here in this situation. Chapter 45 of Genesis and verses three through five. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Footnote, probably thinking he's going to kill them. (laughs) So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, who you sold into sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. As soon as Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, he immediately notice that he immediately took the opportunity to reconcile. He immediately notice this. He immediately comforts them. He's comforting them because of the terrible sins that they had committed against him those 13 years ago. And he immediately sought to restore the relationship and offered forgiveness and reconciliation. After 13 years of misery and 22 years of separation, what would we do? How easy would it be to just either avoid the subject altogether, kill them, or just stare down your nose, just stare down at them and say, hey, I'm Joseph. What do you got to say to that? And keep the bitterness going. Just wait for them to stumble through an apology. But Joseph doesn't do that. I believe this reminds us of how Jesus puts the burden on us as Christians to approach our brother if we've been wronged by our brother. We saw the downfalls of avoiding, avoiding talking about this and avoiding reconciliation with Absalom. Resentment only builds in our hearts when we do this. None of this changed the sins that his brothers committed against Joseph, but Nothing. It doesn't help anything. It's no good to approach this with anything other than openness, quickness, humility, and a heart hoping for reconciliation. We must desire and seek reconciliation instead of seeking to humiliate them and look down on them and bring them down and hold their sin over them for what they have done. And this seems very difficult, but I believe that one thing that can help with this is a good dose of understanding. Uh, For example, if someone loses their temper with you, isn't it always helpful to know why they uh, to understand why they lost their temper with you? It, It kind of does. Now, I've got to throw this out there. This doesn't help for every single situation. There are some things that people do that even if we try to understand their situation, it just doesn't even help at all. But uh, this can help us with a good bit of situations. It will help us if we try to put ourselves in our the one who has sinned against us in their shoes, in the shoes of the ones who have sinned against us in our loved one's shoes. Try to understand, even though we might not see too much reason, even though it's not excusable in the slightest, try to understand 
Why would they do this? What would bring them to do this? What weaknesses might they have? We're not going to get absolute answers, but I believe it can kind of help us have more humility and kind of relate to their humanity in a sense and and pursue reconciliation. And just consider, I don't think Absalom would have been so bitter if he would have kind of related to David's situation. David, just a few years before, had sinned in adultery and murder. David should have punished Amnon, but how difficult is it when you yourself have been an adulterer and a murderer? How difficult is it to punish your son for his sins? Oh, that's terribly difficult. It doesn't excuse David's actions, but it gives us an idea of what he was going through. And that would have helped Absalom a lot to realize this is terrible what my father has done and not punishing him. But I I understand his humanity in the situation. In the same way, I believe that Joseph probably found it a lot easier when he saw his brother's sorrow and realized, you know, they probably felt like this for quite some time and they probably regretted their actions for a long time, but have not been able, have not had the strength to either uh, tell their father the truth or not had the strength to overcome the situation or didn't even have the ability to go find Joseph. They probably thought he was dead. And so that probably helped Joseph say, Man, I've got to overcome this. I've got to offer reconciliation. I've got to comfort them. Got to be humble. And so in our situations, let's try to put ourselves in the shoes of those who have sinned against us, if if that helps. I know all situations, it, it may not. But overall, when we experience adversity among loved ones, let's be the ones who approach them with quickness, reach out with humility, And not just because it's our biblical example in Joseph, but consider this is also our biblical example with Jesus Christ. He is the one who reached out in humility, came down as a servant and gave his life up for us. There's a third thing that Joseph does in this situation. Joseph immediately sought to outdo his whole family in the showing of good works. Quickly notice this in chapter 45 of Genesis and verses 9 through 11. Notice what Joseph says to his brothers there. Hurry up and go to my father and say to him, thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have there. I will provide for you for there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. There are many small ways that Joseph showed kindness throughout the story, but we're simply going to focus on this one right here. When Joseph revealed his identity to his brothers, he immediately made arrangements for his entire family. Yes, even his brothers who had most directly sinned against him to come to Egypt, to come live in the land of Goshen, to continue their occupations and to be provided for in the midst of a famine. Guys, that saved his brother's lives when his brothers did not deserve to continue to live. That saved their lives. And I'll bet you that promoted a lot of uh, it promoted restoration of those broken relationships that were going on there. If we're willing to humble ourselves in such a way, showing kindness and generosity is the best way to mend brokenness. I believe this is why Paul would go on in Romans chapter 12 and verse 20 to say, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. 
If we will offer compliments, offer gifts, offer meals, just nice things to do for those who have sinned against us, it's going to get into their heads. It's going to hopefully melt a heart of stone and promote the best opportunity for reconciliation in that situation. That takes a lot of humility, does it not? But if we will do that, I believe that this is the best way to overcome adversity among loved ones. And so overall, what we see that Joseph did is he developed his own godly character instead of focusing on everybody else's weaknesses. He quickly brought up their sin with a heart of humility and And he showed acts of kindness to his family. In conclusion, I believe that it's helpful for us to use a little test. Use Absalom's example as a test. Absalom was motivated by bitterness and hatred for actions committed years, years ago. And so here's the test. Are we still thinking and talking about the sins someone committed against us years ago? I believe if so, then we have probably moved from a natural sorrow that is completely understandable to a sinful bitterness, and it's gone too far. And so consider three final applications from the life of Joseph, comparing the life of Joseph and the life of Absalom. The first thing that we learn from this situation is that we need to protect our minds. When our feelings are hurt, we need to protect our minds from continuing sorrow, from anger, bitterness, and hatred that often result. Absalom obviously failed in escaping this bitterness, but Joseph succeeded. Don't allow Satan to bring you down. Satan is trying to seek an opportunity. He is tempting us to just soak and relish on what others have done against us, against those who have harmed us. Don't allow this. Don't allow the hatred in our hearts to build. Pray to God for an opportunity. Pray to God for his guidance in this tumultuous time. And in your own mind and in your own actions... Focus on your own godliness. Let's focus on how we can make our, make sure our path is one of purity and righteousness. The second thing we can do is discuss the harm at our first opportunity. Whether we're talking about a future wrong that might be committed against us or there might be, might be wrongs in our own lives that are still unsettled and not handled. Tonight might be our first opportunity to handle that wrong that's been done against us. Because we all know, as we saw in Absalom's situation, waiting only causes the resentment and bitterness to build even from what it may already be right now. Approach those who have harmed you. Let's all approach those who have harmed us with humility and without delay, as Joseph did, with a quiet humility and a compassionate understanding. It's difficult, but try to seek that opportunity to do it in a, in a kind and loving way. And then third, actively seek to show acts of kindness towards those who have harmed us. Melt that barrier of awkward bitterness by setting a standard of Christ-likeness. Setting a standard of outdoing one another in love. Consider how people like Jesus and Joseph... And others showed love and kindness towards those who wronged him. And as we'll get to in John in a few weeks or a couple of months, whenever Brent decides to get to chapter 13, consider how Jesus himself washed the feet of his betrayer. What an amazing thing to do. Acts of kindness have the opportunity to melt everything away. 
All of us grow nervous as we consider actively and proactively seeking peace in these situations in the midst of adversity. We're scared of the blow-ups that could uh, result. We're scared. We're nervous that we're going to fail. But we know avoidance does not help. If we'll approach loved ones with this type of attitude, with these types of actions, then our adversaries can become our friends and loved ones once again. This will provide us the best opportunity to do so. Uh, There was a man at Lost River that one time actually he came forward for a sin like this. His daughter had been sinned against and he had allowed hatred to build in his heart for years towards the man who had harmed his daughter. And that really helped. That really helped us all see that we've got to help and build one another up in these things. Handling hatred, handling bitterness is not easy. And we need the prayers and the help of loved ones here and the wisdom and guidance of loved ones here to do this. And so if there's any way that we can help you overcome these situations, I urge you, talk to us, be open with us about it. Whether you decide to do that publicly now or whether you decide to do that in personal conversations with us. If there's any way we can help you in your walk with the Lord, come forward to the front while we stand and while we sing.